This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. Unbelievably, this is the 500th episode of Panel Borders, a show which has been on air for 15 years, varying in frequency from occasional episodes to weekly programs to its current hour-long monthly slot. With this being an anniversary program, I thought it might be nice to make this a somewhat nostalgic show, and as such, both of today's interviews are looking back at the history of comics. In the second half of today's program, Dr Nicholas Streeton and Kath Tate will be talking about their book, The Inking Woman, which looks at 250 years of female cartoonists inspired by an exhibition of the same name at the Cartoon Museum in London. However, to start off with, I'm talking to Mike Lake, one of the founders of the Forbidden Planet chain of shops, who was involved in the birth of the British direct market in the UK, which inaugurated organised distribution of American comics in this country in the 1970s. In our conversation, I'm chatting to Mike about his history in comics, starting off as a teenager attending conventions, coming across such other luminaries in their formative years as Paul Levitz, who would be the head of DC Comics until 2009, as well as numerous others involved in the British scene at the time. It's hard to know where to start with your history in comics. I mean, you know, you are kind of revered as one of the founders of Forbidden Planet. You were heavily involved in the early days of direct marketing in the UK. How did all that start? Were you just simply a comics fan who would read classified ads and think, how do I get hold of, of comics That's in an exactly easier way? That's exactly how it started, isn't it? I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll question the legendary bit, but forget that. So, um, I always loved comic books, it seems, from very early on, because I know that I was collecting Harold Hare Weekly, British comic, in 1958 and 59, because I still got them, so I was like six and seven, <laughs> and it just seemed like obvious to me that you get the first one, then you put you get the second one, well, you've got to put them together, and... <laughs> then you've got to keep a set of them, haven't you? Absolutely. And we discovered discovered Eagle comics, and on the back page of Eagle was Frank Bellamy drawing Churchill. <laughs> um, I'd started reading pretty early on. I'd read all the great Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and stuff before I was ten, for absolute sure, because mm. I'd found a second-hand shop in our little town, so I'd gone looking amongst all the girly magazines and junk and old books and stuff and occasionally find comic books and <laughs> occasionally find gold dust, a, a science fiction book. Nice. Um, so it all went into my head as one great big thing, really. Mm. The other oddity was um, my dad, um, without going into it, um, um, split up early on with me mum but I got I took three books with me when we split when I was four years old and those three books turned out to be an edition of Treasure Island drawn by um, N.C. Wyeth 
cheap edition. <laughs> um, an edition of Treasure Island drawn by Mervyn Peake. Wow. Which to this day is one of my absolute favourite items in the whole world. Hmm. Um, 1948 edition with lots of illos by Mervyn Peake. And um, the third book was called Interplanetary Flight hmm. by A.C. Clarke. <laughs> which turns out to be his very first book, wow. 1949, Temple Press. And just a book about um, 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 the physics and dynamics of getting mm. rockets into the air and, and orbiting and stuff. Was, uh, Clark was the first person to put forward the idea of geosynchronous satellites for mm. communication. Mm. Uh, something that's kind of forgotten. Arthur was a genius. <laughs> Arthur was a genius. I loved him. Still love his stuff better yeah. than just about anybody. Nice. So going into the old little second-hand comic shops, we started seeing American comic books. Mm. And they were on newsstands pretty intermittently. Mm. It started to pick up what I could afford with, with paper rounds and stuff. Any money I had went into just buying some bits and pieces of comics occasionally. Mm. This was great. Occasionally in the second-hand shops, you might find something older. And look how different they were. Wow. Da, yeah. da, da. And, um, and the other thing that struck me was there was one artist that always caught my eye. And whenever I looked at the title page, there were two names. So, obviously, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are drawing these. Mm. And then I noticed, hang on, that's Stan Lee and Kirby, but it says Ayers. But here's one that says, not Ayers, it's another name. Um, um, and it looks different, mm. but it's not different. Mm. And that made me realise, oh, there's a lot of work goes into this, so... Maybe he's penciling it, and this other guy's mm. putting the pen line on, mm. which was inking. Well, and obviously, you know, the Americans were far ahead of the Brits in terms of actually crediting the artists and writers at that time, you know. This was still 1960-61, where the yeah. credits weren't complete. You'd mm. sometimes maybe see a signature, mm. if you were lucky. Mm. And um, in the back of some of these comics were little five-page horror, mystery, science fiction stories. Hmm. And they were signed Stan Lee and Ditko. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff. Nice. Unbelievable stuff. And then notice Jack Kirby was drawing something new, the Fantastic Four. Ooh, mm. superhero. <laughs> so Fantastic Four number three was the first one I picked up. Nice. And... Um, that's it for the next seven years. <laughs> I'm gone. <laughs> So as you became uh, an adult and started thinking of what you might do with your life and earn a living, I mean, how, how on earth did you start to distribute comics? I mean, presumably, you know, there is this kind of this tale of American comics coming to the UK as ballast in ships and there was no kind of proper distribution. So how did you start organising? To my knowledge, I still don't know that backstory. That mm. backstory goes back to the 50s and into the very early 60s. By the time I was getting into it, it was the early 60s, and there was mostly, you could buy most Marvel comics and DC comics on your newsstand in your newsagent. Oh, really? Okay. But not everyone. Sure. 
There were massive gaps. You didn't see a title for several months. Hmm. FF1 and FF2, I never saw one in a second-hand shop. I never saw them. Um, um, started noticing that some of the comics that I was picking up had 10 cents or 12 cents written on them. Hmm. But occasionally you'd find one with uh, 10p written on them. Mm. They'd been printed for England, obviously. Huh. How does that happen? So all of these questions, and um, there was an advert very regularly in the back of DC Comics and Marvel Comics for a couple of dealers selling back issues. There was mm. a guy called Howard Rogowski, which was the first... Not quite the first dealer, but he was in and amongst it very early on. Mm. And I, I got his lists and cried when I saw the prices. <laughs> you know, some of the comics were $3. Wow. You can't afford that. <laughs> I wrote to Stan Lee and asked if I could get back his shoes of Fantastic Four, and I got a card back from him saying, sorry, they've gone. <laughs> it was a, it was a, the usual printed, you sure. may find the answer in our letters page, but then someone had written on it, and I always thought it was Stan Lee, but it was probably um, fabulous Flo Steinberg. It was <laughs> probably his uh, number two lady right. who looked after that stuff. But <laughs> I've still got that card, of course. Nice. Joined the Merry Marvel Marching, Merry Marvel Marching Society. Indeed. Um, and... Found an advert in Exchange and Mart, mm. but for a fanzine called Fantasy Advertiser, and that was the unlocking. Ah, that's where we discovered there are other people collecting comics in this country, <laughs> and so I, you know, saved up, bought a couple of little comics, and started. We couldn't phone each other and there was hardly any travel. Well, it was like 12 living up North England. Um, so it was writing letters. Yeah. Um, um, and that's how we progressed for several years. Mm. Um, the other great influence back at this point was the science fiction paperbacks. Mm. We've got our second-hand shop and we've got our bookshops, but... Um, a huge thing. Do you remember the Warren magazines, Creepy, Eerie, yeah, yeah. and Famous Monsters of Filmland? Mm -hmm. In the back pages, he ran a mail order. It ah. was called the Captain Company. Okay. And there on those back pages were the repros of the Ace Edgar Rice Burroughs books and mm. the Lancer Conan books mm. with Frank Frazetta covers. Hmm. The other life changer for all of us that were around in those days. Yeah, but you couldn't buy them in England. Huh. Um, but there was an address in London that would supply the mail order. It was called the Vault of Horror <laughs> from a PO box. <clears throat> with being slightly in communication with very few people, discovered that there is going to be a comic book convention in Birmingham. <laughs> It was a September 1968, so I was okay. just 16. Gosh. And we'd you know, been talking with some of these people by letter and bought a couple of things off them, and um, the Vault of Horror guy was going to be there. Uh, He'd helped sort it out. Turns out it was Phil Clark and Mick Higgs, his friend in Birmingham, mm -hmm. and a guy from 
London called Derek Stokes, who had the nickname Bram. Bram Stokes, Bram Stoker. <laughs> right. So you called him Bram. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. he was absolutely the most beautiful archetype hippie. Long blonde hair, little beard and moustache, <laughs> loom pants, absolutely the archetype. And he was running the Vault of Horror. Ah, okay. So I went to the first Comic-Con. Frank Dobson was there. Frank Dobson was the first proprietor of Fantasy Advertiser. Okay. Frank's name's a bit forgotten now, but mm. Frank did... A shop in the old Kent Road called Weird Fantasy. Ah. Years later, to be taken over by Des Skin's setup. Okay. Des was mates with him around that time. Mm. Some something like that. Um. So Frank was at the convention. Um, I had spent three dollars on a Golden Age comic from Howard Rogowski, and I took it with me <laughs> to the convention. It was The Witness Number 1 from 1948. A lot more than $3 now. <laughs> and, I, and I'm showing off this lovely comic. <laughs> and someone had a copy of Marvel Mystery Comics from the early 40s. I've never seen anything so beautiful. <laughs> uh, it was life-changing. And Derek was there, Derek Stokes, Bram. Now I got friendly with him. And um, I told him that I had tickets for my first rock concert and I was going to London the next weekend. Perhaps I could visit him at the Vault of Horror. Mm. And he said, well, it isn't a shop, it's just a room, but I work in one of the popular book centres. Mm. So meet me there and I'm going to that concert too. Huh. Meet me at six, we'll go along. So I went along to Camden Town to his popular book centre <laughs> If you don't know what that is, that's very similar to the um, record and tape exchange sort okay. of thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think record and tape exchange is a descendant from that. Hmm. There were two chains of popular book centres around London, very hmm. successful. Hmm. Um, the comic guy in Lavender Hill. Who, who had the comic shop in Lavender Hill? Oh, was that Avalon? Yeah, uh, Avalon. He was one of the managers as okay. well. I knew him right way back when he was managing them and helped him get started with a proper comic shop years mm. later. So it's 1968. It's the week after the very first comic convention. And I arrive in London on a Saturday morning. Now, I've never been to London before. Oh and God. I went along to Camden Town and met up with Derek Stokes, with Bram. And... Um, we walked up the road, when he shut the shop, we walked up the road to the roundhouse to see the doors nice. and the Jefferson aeroplane <laughs> playing an all-nighter. <laughs> Tell you, man, that was the best week of my entire life. <laughs> Nothing will ever be better than that. <laughs> First comic convention and the doors and the aeroplane in <laughs> the day. Oh, it was fantastic. Brilliant. And um, and, and my life was set mm. uh, from then on. But when we, we the convention started in '68, the second one I couldn't go to. The second one was in London, but my exams were on, so I couldn't go to it. <laughs> Third one, 1970, was in Sheffield, mm. and I did go to that and met Alan Moore. Hmm. He wasn't at the first convention, but a lot of the young, younger, up-and-coming new artisty writers mm. were at this third one. For yeah. sure. Um, well, presumably at that point he was just doing fanzines like everyone else. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And it, 
it's 1970. By this time, of course, we'd realised that there's a lot of comics came out in America that weren't coming out in the United Kingdom. Mm. And every now and again, you're more or less getting every comic every month, but now and again there's a gap. Mm. There was a famous gap around Fantastic Four number 32, so whatever year that was, for three months, hmm. hardly a comic came in. Mm. Um, so Fantastic Four 32, 33 were always rare. Uh, Tales to Astonish 59, I think, mm. was always rare. A few of them were like just rare. You couldn't get them. They weren't in England. Um, and, and who who was actually shipping them at that point? Um, um, world Distributors. Okay. A big old-fashioned news agent distribution company operating out of Manchester. Ah. Um, I believe in amongst our community and on Facebook or whatever is a guy called Brian Clark mm-hmm. who I believe had stuff to do with world distributors Okay, and I haven't talked to Brian for ages but we ought to ask him what was going on I keep mm. meaning to try and find it, to call him and talk about it but, but you just get the impression that they took what was ever given to them by the Americans that and were happy to have it that is what was happening right. that is what was happening Gosh. <clears throat> but around that time 1970 my favourite human, Phil Clark, who'd done the first comic convention, he had very enterprisingly made friends with a local American Air Force base. <laughs> and he, every week or two, would go at the Air Force base and buy a load of American comic books from... <laughs> The PX, the shop. Okay. And shortly, the manager started getting comics for Phil. So the shop on the Air Force Base was importing American comics for For the the American airmen. That's hilarious. (laughs) And And more that they could read. More than they could read. um, I think I was at university by then... I would hitch down every other week or two to Birmingham and we'd meet in a chip shop, him and a few other <laughs> other collectors, and he would buy our our air imports. That's These were air freighted because mm. they were for the PX. Mm. They were three months ahead of mm. our British ones. And they had cents on the cover, not pence. Yeah, yeah. And actually, they also had an insert for buying jewellery. It was just specifically for Air Force men. Oh, OK. So if you see ever see a Marvel comic or a DC comic from that period, there's a little thin card insert in them. Uh, that's where they came from. They came from the Air Force base. Wow. Huh. Um, uh, which was amusing. Around that time, I think 1969, the aforementioned Derek Stokes, Bram, had opened the first comic shop. This is a perceived wisdom. We might be, find that there were shops before that sure. that were selling comics. There was Brainstorm, Lee, Lee Harris's shop in Portobello Road, mm. whatever. Derek was the first comic book shop with the most wonderful name, Dark They Were and Golden Eyed. Indeed. The name of a short story by Ray Bradbury. Yeah, from the Martian Chronicles. Yeah. Um, and... Um, he was selling science fiction paperbacks, British and American imports, as well as getting new comics 
And I believe somewhere around that time, Nick Landor, later my partner in everything, mm. he'd been living in New York. Now, I'm going over with you what was going on in England. Of mm. course, more was going on in America than was going on in England. Late mm. 60s, very early 70s. And sitting in Coney Island in Brooklyn was <laughs> the grandfather of the whole direct sale comic book business, a guy called Phil Suling. Okay. Great big lovely teddy bear of a bloke <laughs> who was a teacher locally in Brooklyn, but a big comic fan. Mm. He'd started running small monthly I think he called them First Saturdays, basically a comic mart mm. out of out of um, in Brooklyn. Paul Levitz was one of his Saturday boys. Hmm. In the late 60s, this was. <laughs> now, there was hardly any fandom, there was hardly any back-issue market, there was hardly anything. But Phil knew all the people at DC in particular, he was friends with them. Mm. Uh, he was friends with a bunch of the old guy artists as well. He was big mates with Bill Everett. I'd dearly love to have met Bill Everett, <laughs> but sadly he'd passed by the time I got to America. Mm. Uh, Phil realised that... Ah, Phil went to the boss at DC and said, look, I want to buy comics every month, but you just send me 50 Sergeant Rocks, 50 Supermans and 50 Batmans. I don't want 50 Sergeant Rocks and I don't want 50 <laughs> Batmans. I want 200 Batmans and I want 10 Sergeant Rocks. Yeah, yeah. Can we organise something? And they worked out that Phil would buy from DC directly the quantity he wanted they would print for him. Wow. Firm sale. Huh. No returns. Okay. That was the thing. Well, and you can see how that would then lead... 30 years later, the things like the previous catalogue with comic shops putting in advance orders. Leads to absolutely everything. He would tell his few customers up front, order now for September, mm. three months in advance. He'd put the order into DC two months in advance and he'd get the comics. Hmm. Um, that was the start of the, the, the direct sale thing, basically. And then he repeated the trick with Marvel, I believe. And around that time, Nick Landau was living in... New York mm. um, I'd met him at the first con and various others um, so he started importing from Phil, he'd lived in New York moved back ah. to England and he arranged, um, it was only a bi-weekly air freight shipment and it was only teeny tiny mm. it would fit in your car more or less <laughs> what we got um, um, and so between Phil bringing in from the airbase and some supplies coming in from America, slowly but surely the other other comics were coming into the United Kingdom. Mm. This is now 71, 72, okay. 73. And what was Nick doing with the ones that he imported? He just wholesaled them out to the tiny number of customers that there were around. In particular, Dartley were and Goldeneye was ah. the big customer because it's the only one in London. So he was the go-between? yeah. Um, he started as comic media distribution. Mm. But Nick never drove, and he used to get mates to help him do stuff, and I was one of those mates. Uh -huh. so up to 70, 
before I was at Lancaster University, but hitch, literally hitching to London almost every Friday night and back mm. to Lancaster on Sunday afternoon. It was great. Um, so I just kept in touch with absolutely everybody. Um, Dartley were was just the mecca. It was just wonderful. Um in 74, I moved to London to become, God help me, an accountant. <laughs> and I started helping out Derek on Saturdays in the comic shop and loved it, didn't like accounting. <sighs> um, so sort of went full time with Derek after a year, much to my mother's displeasure. But it's possible that some of your accountancy skills came in useful in well, helping you run a I shop. Did all the, I did everything. Well, I did all go. the accounts later on. So I'm helping Nick on the side sort of thing, um, but I'm also seeing how Derek is operating, where mm. he's buying his stuff from, mm. and um, and how it all worked. There was a hugely important supplier of everything that wasn't comics and science fiction, <laughs> which was Bud Plant. Okay, I know the name. Yeah. Uh, Bud is still around. He runs an illustrated book company old and new he's specializing in art books and so on mm. so you could go to him and buy some nc wyeth first editions for instance is that conquistador no that? that's that's in england okay Bud plant lived in grass valley california ah. which to this day i've never visited because i suspect if i visit i'll never come home <laughs> <laughs> bud's the loveliest guy in the business um um he was, he still is. I saw him a couple of years ago. It was great. Um, but from Bud, Bud was California-based, so he was getting all the underground comics that were coming out of San Francisco and LA ah. and stuff. Huh. And shipping in those days was in mail sacks. <laughs> um, and every three or four months, we'd get a mail sack from Bud Plant full of fabulous, very Freak Brothers and <laughs> Robert... Crumb and Zap Comics and yeah, and they'd be sold in a week. Mm. And I kept saying to Derek, "What? Can't you order more? No, we can't afford it. We have to pay up front." <sighs> but you'd be selling them if you had them. Yeah, but we can't afford it, so you just left it. <clears throat> we had lots of people coming in the shop. A couple of Dutch guys used to come in regular. After I saw them a few times, and I would talk to everybody because that's what I ought to do. Mm. And the Dutch guys said, uh, we, we have a market stall in, in Rotterdam. <laughs> uh, we um, could use suppliers with comics and books. And I said, Oh, I bet we could, yeah. Um, uh, Derek's not here, I'll ask him later. So Derek came, I asked him, Derek said, No. We're not supplying anybody. It's competition. <laughs> Derek, they're in Rotterdam. Don't care. It's competition. <laughs> oh, so the guys came in and now they had to say, no, we can't supply you. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. Um, and so they presumably came in hmm? they didn't know about Lambiet because that must have been founded around the same sort of Amsterdam time. Amsterdam rather than Rotterdam. No, but sure, but... Amsterdam is closer to Rotterdam than London. <laughs> uh, indeed, but Lambiac, I don't believe, were um, were wholesaling. Okay. Um, by the way, listeners, we said earlier that Dartley Warren Goldeneyed was the first comic shop. Lambiac, 
<laughs> who was talking with the guy last year. I think we were a few months before them, <laughs> but I don't know if that's true or not. We'll have to check that out at some point. Yeah, yeah. Lambiek are an amazing company. Um, so anyway, my guys from Rotterdam came back in a month or two later and said, uh, really, please, supply us with comics. We could sell a lot. So again, I asked Derek, and again, Derek turned me down, turned them down, and they came in and I said, sorry, Derek, won't supply you. And as they were leaving the shop, I said, meet me down the road in half an hour in the coffee bar. <laughs> I felt I had a clear conscience because mm. I'd asked twice and said, well, I'll do what I can for you. Yeah, yeah. And um, they were also wanting to source art books. They wanted to source records because hmm. it was the time of pub rock just going into into uh, punk and mm. stuff like that. So mm. they wanted uh, labels, um, like the birth of the underground record label sort mm. of thing, um, two-tone and stuff like that. I don't think two-tone were going then. But I, I managed to find a few places where you could buy records wholesale. Mm. Not big quantities, you've got 30 here, 30 there. Um, I knew where to get paperbacks from there were two or three book warehouse books wholesale suppliers right in the middle of london mm. um um so I, I i was supplying them with just about enough to make like 30 quid a week <laughs> uh which well was, that was quite a lot back then <laughs> it was just enough to survive um ish and i sort of started it full time but here I'm also working with with um, with Nick. I'm doing lots and lots of work for Nick, and I'm seeing gaps in what he's doing. Mm. He wasn't working it at all. This was just a really a, very much a backroom cottage job for him. He was doing film studies at uni, I think, and then <laughs> he got a proper job. He went. He was working at Fleetway till eighty one. He didn't go anything like full time with us till eighty one. Huh. Um, but there was things, there were people that didn't want to deal with Nick and he was getting competition. Colin Campbell had set up Buy Two Books. Okay. B-I-Y-T-O-O. One of the worst names ever, Colin. <laughs> what a, no, Colin was a big competitor. Now he's one of my best friends, but we weren't <laughs> then. Um, and um, to be honest, Colin was more efficient and better than us. And I say us, it wasn't us, it was Nick. Hmm. Um, but most of the shops around the country were my mates. Hmm. They weren't Nick's mates and they weren't Colin's mates. <laughs> so, Well, so it became inevitable that you and Nick should work more closely together. Well, what he, had, he wanted to collect a debt from someone in Birmingham. Um, and Nick said to me, he won't deal with me, could you sort it out? And I bought a little van, a 200 quid van, an escort van, which did millions of miles in that thing. <laughs> um, so I drove him up to Birmingham. Uh, he had to wait in the car. I went and sorted it out with the guy. I got some cash and I got some stock back from him, <laughs> put it in the car, drive him back down to London. I just said to him, look, I'm doing all your work for you. I've got a business, you've got a business, put them together, I'll throw in the van 50-50. And he did. Hmm. So within the week, I'd absolutely 
got together a list of all the stuff we had to do, more and more addresses of people to sell to, basically. Mm. Two things. Places to sell to, there was no export to the US. Mm. So immediately I've got to try and flog British stuff to the US. Mm. So we're just going through endless lists. Wherever we could see addresses, we'd pick up an address and write and so on. But also, equally important, frankly, more important, more lines of supply, Mm. more lines of stock. Mm. Doubtly was the first shop that did comics and science fiction. Mm. But there was kind of more than that. There was still more than that. So I just started to buy up everything that I thought we could sell a few copies of. Mm. Managed to open up accounts with practically everyone around the country. (laughs) Uh, Publishers, some foreign publishers would supply me directly. Mm. I found an American supplier that would supply us a wholesaler rather than direct. Um, Would supply me with paperback books. Mm. Um, Dick Witter, FNSF, F and SF Company mm. in Staten Island. Hmm. Um, Are they the guys who did all those endless mail-order flyers that you get in every magazine in the 80s? That's right. Huh, okay. That's right. Um, I think I subscribed to them for a bit <laughs> <laughs> and then gave up when they kept on flogging stuff I didn't want. <laughs> he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy, um, Dick Witter. Um, I'd left out they were... Um, this is where it gets slightly... Creepy, I guess. Dark the Word had moved to a big new shop, and I, I, it was a wrong move. They shouldn't have done it. I think it was too much rent, whatever, too many stuff. It mm. was a different animal, and it wasn't going well. Mm. What year was this? 77. Okay. And it was our biggest customer, so mm. we can't have our biggest customer screwing up. And frankly, they were screwing up. So we um, we thought we'd better find our own shop. Mm. Um, in amongst this, a third member joined our little team, mm. Mike Luckman. Mm. I'll tell his story some other time, but Mike was hugely important. He joined very early on, and he was my man. He was the boss. He was a little bit older than me. He could speak better than me. He could get on better with people than me. (laughs) He was ambitious and he could schmooze. (laughs) I didn't know how to do that then. I learned a lot from Mike. And Mike was absolutely insistent, man, we've got to get our own shop. Mm. And we put out feelers with all the agencies to try and find. But we did something that pretty well... All the other shops didn't do. It had to be the centre of London in a proper spot. Dark they were, had that, but it was failing. They hadn't got the right shop. Mm. We had to find the right shop, and it took us a year. We turned down a bunch of places. We, it had to be the right place. And I remember being in a little shed. We were operating from a shed behind a garage behind a pub in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> with a tree growing through a roof. <laughs> it was just appalling. I mean, it was the size of this room. That was our warehouse, man. Um, um, I remember Mike took the phone call from our, land, land, from our agent saying, OK, 23 Denmark Street, you got it. <laughs> wow. Couldn't believe it, man. 
couldn't believe it, right in the centre of London. And that was that's that's where Forbidden Planet started in early 1978. And that was an estate agent that you'd asked, we need a small shop, it needs to be central. Yeah. It needs to be a, a cool area, yeah. in inverted commas. Yeah. But round the corner from Charing Cross Road, right in amongst all the guitar shops. Exactly. Not Soho, but next door to Soho. Um, I always wanted Old Compton Street, but we never got Old Compton <laughs> Street. <clears throat> um, and so we started Forbidden Planet. Now we had our relationship going with Phil Suling in the United States because we had stayed with him and um, and we were selling a lot of stuff. We were now beginning to sell a lot of stuff. And this was 1978? 77, 78 into 79, yeah. Because I was going to say that the timing would have been perfect because Star Wars was released in the UK in December 77. That's right. And so all of a sudden there's a whole new audience for sci-fi. And we knew that audience was going to come. Mm. We knew that audience was arriving. We're already a year or two into 2000 AD, remember? Of course. At this sort of point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The vibe was there. yeah. Start, yeah, it it was it was rolling along. There was something in the zeitgeist. Yeah, and um, with Phil Suling, we started to make contacts with lots of American publishers and the artists, and we were determined from very early on to do the signing thing, mm-hmm. get people in for signings and. We went for broke immediately. We went to the top end like almost as soon as we possibly could. God only knows how we managed to afford it. We brought Neil Adams and his wife over from the United States, put them up in a top hotel and set up to publicise what was going to be our first big signing. He was... There was a new portfolio from him called The New Heroes. Mm. Some of those characters later would be in Adams's comic book output from the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. when he did his own comic publishing. Mm. Um, we got um, a few... We did a couple of radio adverts, I think, for it and advertised in the Evening Standard and stuff like huh. that. I went to a little convention in Paris and I went to a little convention in Germany, I think, and translated our little handbill into German and French and handed <laughs> them out. Please come and see Neil Adams. Oh, my God. And all the German, uh, the, the foreign dealers were laughing at me, saying, you spend money on this. No one will come to London to see it. Ah, ah, you waste your money. We didn't waste our money. Um, um, that made us... We didn't sleep the night before. <laughs> Got there at eight thirty. There was already a queue starting. Wow! And no one had done anything like that in any of the comic shops. Huh. The only place you ever met anybody would be a comic mart or a comic convention. Mm. And um, we just thought it made sense to do this. And we 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 got um, we got a Rolls Royce to drive <laughs> Adams to the front door of Forbidden Planet. By the time of which there was several hundred people in Amazing. the queue. He could not believe it because none of the Americans had done anything like really? this ever. Really, we were absolutely the pioneers of this stuff. Wow! 
And uh, what did the neighbouring guitar shops think about this? They loved it. They loved it. <laughs> it was fine. It was great because we got a right mixed customer base. So one of my better mates was Alex Harvey. The Alex Harvey band? No. Okay. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> if anyone's listening and haven't heard the Alex Harvey band, please listen to Alex Harvey live. <laughs> It'll change your life. Yeah, he was a lovely guy. <laughs> Um, and we, we, Adam signed until like seven, eight o'clock at night. Wow. It was like the best day ever. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <sighs> that was the prototype for, um, for our signings, our big signings of which mm. we did many, many. Um, Nick was still working full time, I think at 2000 AD. If you look back at 2000 AD and battle from mm. eight. 78, 79-ish. Mm. Um, I think there's the odd credit to Nick, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. But that was his period. Well, I mean, and obviously this would be a question to ask Nick at some point, but he presumably had his own agenda as well in terms of wanting to set up his own publishing company alongside. Became editor of 2000 AD, presumably with an eye to getting the rights to reprint their stuff for what would become Titan Not at all. That was later. That was a bit later. Right. The point of reprinting Dread was always on our lips. Oh, really? It was obvious Mm. from early on. Um, Once we'd got the shop going, it was absolutely in my mind and Mike Lutman's mind that sooner or later we're going to be doing publishing. Mm. Um, But it was just me and him for several, you know, for those early years. What happened was that Mike Luckman moved to New York at very short notice. Mm. Another story, another time. <laughs> I think he gave him two weeks' notice to say he was off, oh, leaving me to run Forbidden Planet and Titan on my own. Right. Um, and uh, after a little while, I, I had to scream at Nick, Nick, for God's sake, you've got to come and help us out on this. Mm. And he, so he quit 2000 and started helping us out. Uh-huh. It's the only time I ever got a, any kind of acknowledgement from him. He said to me after a few weeks, gosh, Mike, I didn't realise there was so much work to do. <laughs> right, right, Nick, yeah. Um, anyway, a few months onwards, mm. he said to me, He'd done that first lovely dummy for the first Dread book, and he said, can you sell 3,000? <laughs> and I said, I'm pretty sure I could sell 3,000. He said, right, well, we can do it then. So we printed, I think we sold, we printed five, and we were sold out in a month or three. Wow. I mean, you can't sell those quantities today. No. But there wasn't much to buy back then. Well, I was going to say, I mean, if you think of reprints of comics as kind of nice, chunky books, um, in those days, you know, they were very much high-end hardbacks of the likes of Dan Dare and whatnot, but very little else as far as I know. Mm, There wasn't so much. And I was always absolutely intent on getting the word out to the civilians. Mm. I always wanted to spread the word on this stuff. So when we started our own publishing, we got out into the book trade. I went round... I went all around the country visiting the big bookshops, getting to know the managers and saying, ask, you know, buy some comic stuff off us. And slowly but surely it worked. Hmm. I'll tell you where else it worked. And another important element of what we were doing was 
the art book thing. Do you remember Roger Dean's fabulous Dragon's Dream publishing mm. imprint? Mm-hmm. Again, any listeners, look up Dragon's Dream, Roger <laughs> Dean's Dragon's Dream lineup. Um, he had the genius idea of packaging the art books in a 12 inch by 12 inch size. Huh. So he could sell them to record shops. Genius. Because they'd fit in the record racks. A lot of the artwork he did was record-related. He was an album cover artist. Mm. And he was selling tens of thousands of books, Hmm. Um, um, not just to bookshops and not Mm. just to fantasy shops. So I piggybacked that quite a bit by trying to flog to record shops. And it's a natural thing. They did pretty well with our stuff. So it's one thing running a shop and a mail order company and sourcing uh, distribution and sourcing stock that you're going to sell. How did you get into publishing? Well, I left it to Nick. I completely left it to Nick after a... Because he's got a good eye. Um, Design was always good. Mm. Um, That first book is a beautiful size, beautiful shape, Mm. looks fantastic. Um, And... um, by this time, it's Nick and me, no Mike. Mm. But we started going to the Frankfurt Book Fair very early on, 1980-81, we started going to the Book Fair just to look round, just to see, make contacts, just to see people. Um, a few of the publishers used to laugh at us, you're the publishers from England who never do anything. <laughs> but then we did it, then we did it. Um, and um, I was looking after the money, um, all the accounts and stuff. The shop never made lots of money publishing didn't make lots of money the distribution was good the distribution was our lifeline Mm. always and that increased in absolutely leaps and bounds um i'd moved from the shed to the basement of forbidden planet and then we finally managed to rent a place in the east end quite a decent big Two or three or four thousand square foot place in the East End. Wow! And <clears throat> that was the warehouse. So I ran things from there basically. The shop we had a good manager. We had um, um, Stan Nichols and then later Dick Jude, I think, um, um, and left Nick to the publishing. Mm. We agreed on what the publishing was going to be, mm. but there was no real arguments or disagreements because it was more or less screamingly obvious what we should be doing. Yeah. Um, Nick didn't want to originate, which was a thing that I didn't... I, I wanted to start at least doing something, um, but that didn't start till Violent Cases. Nick mm. didn't want to publish that, and Gaiman brought it round to me mm. and said, Nick doesn't want to publish this. And I said, we'll publish it. So <laughs> we published it, so we published it. Um and presumably, um, Paul Gravette had a hand in that as well because Escape is yeah, he was uh, he as, was our as... mate. I don't think he had the resources to do it properly as a book, so he was in amongst that. And the very first printing has Escape on it, not Titan. Yeah, in fact, <clears throat> um, yeah, that, and that. So we've we've we had properly running, properly profitable, variously profitable shops, and the publishing and. The distribution. Mm. What was the first branch that you opened outside of Denmark Street? What I did was, well, we opened up Forbidden Planet 2 a few doors up. Okay. And split the science fiction into that. Because ah, right. it had grown too much. Um, um, working with other shops around the country, 
um, we were still getting competition. I think we, Colin Campbell wasn't competing anymore, but there was always somebody new coming in to try and compete. Oh, we'll do better than Titan. Hmm. Um, I think I had 13 or 14 co- different competitors over the 10-year period. So my main job was keeping our <laughs> our customer base intact. Um, absolutely. And one of the ways of doing that was doing deals with some of the bigger shops around the country so they're part of our group so mm. that they're not going to buy from anyone else. Indeed. All we had to do was stay efficient, which mm. we more or less were. There were ups and downs, and some people gave us more competition than others. Um, I've forgotten his name now. Do you remember Toxic? The, the comic, comic Toxic? Yeah. yeah, it had martial law in it and yeah. various other strips. That came from a company called Neptune. Okay. They were the ones that gave us the hardest job. Ah. Why? Because Chuck Rosansky, giant American dealer, was backing him to take us on. Huh. As I, a distribution. I know this directly because cause Chuck t- phoned me up to say this is what was going to happen. <laughs> and he actually said to me, do you want to sell out to us now? Because you'll get more from us now than in six months when you're out of business. Oh, yeah, he said that to me. Amazing. And Chuck's my friend. He's still yeah, my friend, yeah, yeah, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Uh, well, no, Chuck. Well, no. <laughs> so that 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 was hard work, and they did go massively bust. <laughs> by which time they were a diamond customer, and when they finally went bust, Diamond took over their remnants and set up in the UK. Huh. That would huh. have been eighty nine ninety. Mm. And now, for the first time, we've got really serious. There's going to be really serious competition. And Neptune was designed just as a distributor, distributor and publisher. Then they uh, didn't own well, any shops. He more or less told me, and everyone else told me, that he just wanted to screw us. He hated wow. us. Okay, I bet lots of people did simply because sure. they thought we were we shouldn't be doing what we were doing, but we did what we were doing because we were incredibly good at it. Well, and, and presumably with the success of even just the first Forbidden Planet and um, the legacy of Dark They Were, there must have been other comic shops opening up around the country, having seen that you guys could make a profit Absolutely, and I massively tried to encourage anyone I ever possibly could. I mostly vetted pretty well everybody, vetted. I I always talked to new customers, and some were plainly (laughs) no-hopers, Uh, so be careful and some were very ambitious and clever and some would listen to me and some would work with us um, um, John Brown mm-hmm. one of my favourite guys um, he was they walk among us in in uh, Kingston on Thames Okay. Um, him and his wife came when they were still teenagers and <laughs> said uh, and I, I know I, I helped them out as much as I ever possibly could um, some people didn't want to know. Um, what's he called? Um, Jonathan Ross set up a comic shop, didn't he? And um, their manager had worked for us, <laughs> which is fine, but she just didn't want to know. She um, um, she absolutely would not buy from us, and she bought just from anywhere else. Huh. Um, so they screwed up in a year and a half. Um, they'd gone. Jonathan Ross told me he lost three hundred grand on that. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, whatever. Yeah. But um, well, and obviously Forbidden Planet then was spreading. I mean, you know, they I don't know when the branch in New York opens, but obviously well, there was a branch was in New that, York. That's, a branch that's in the dark Paris. side. This is okay. where Mike Luckman. This is what Mike Luckman did, and um, um, somewhat annoyingly, he didn't include me and Nick in it. Ah, okay. Beginning of a bit of a fracture there. You ah. could you could say with some sort of understatement. Okay. And I, I can't go into that. It was a, an unbelievable soap opera. Sure. The most ridiculous soap opera you could imagine with Phil Suling and... Because Phil was a partner in it, but Phil got cancer and was dying and he died in about 1985. It got very, very, very messy. Okay. The New York shop was never run by us. Well, okay, I won't ask about New York, yeah. but, but I believe that there was a Forbidden Planet Paris... For a while? No, no, it wasn't in Paris. I had a real okay. good mate in Paris. Ah, okay. That's what I prefer to do. Simply mm. just work with people and, and, okay. and independently because our heads and our hearts were in the right place. Get good stuff out to everybody. Mm. Then well, I could very very happy to work with other people, and we did a great job. So mm. everyone was happy to work with us. In um, Paris, it was Tom Future. Okay. Run by Stan Barrett and his wife, and that was taken over by Yves Raskin. And later it. taken over as something else. And I never met the new guy. Mm. Um, um, yeah, most most of our European stuff was there. Um, I can't remember them all now. There were other shops in Holland and Germany and Italy, mm. a few in Spain. But so you actually only did run shops in the UK? Yes, we never... Okay. Yeah, we didn't do anything else. So at one point there was Forbidden Planet Bristol, that, well, still is, uh, Forbidden Planet Coventry, um, and it was an aim to spread across the country as much as you could with the resources well, that you had? Y- yes-ish, yes, that, yes, yes-ish. Yeah. Um, Nick and I sort of also slowly fractured as the years mm. went on and uh, we then ended up splitting the company into two. Indeed. Forbidden Planet Limited and Forbidden Planet International. Um, so I'd, I've had virtually nothing to do with any of the shops since the late, early, early 90s, really. Okay. Um, I kind of fell out, out of love with American comic books by the early 90s. I did not they become manufactured collectibles mm. to a certain extent, the gold variant covers and all that sort of thing. Mm. And in particular, image comics had come in and I found them unreadable. I still find them unreadable. <laughs> I, I, They're making they, good comics now. <laughs> just, this is old image, no, not no, new image, ever, <laughs> dear listener. I mean, great company and a great bunch of people. I just hated what they were publishing and I didn't like the look of the new comics. Yeah. When um, when the computer colouring came in, they sure. lost so much subtlety. It just I did, just didn't love it anymore. Mm. Just didn't love it anymore. Also, Diamond, had given, Diamond were, by this time... Can I backtrack very slightly? Please Something do. I yeah. didn't bring up. Yeah. Phil Suling started the whole distribution thing out of the United States. He had an absolute monopoly. What he did was sell out to sell to sub distributors. I was the European sub distributor. Huh. 
Bud Plant was a sub-distributor, various regional places around the country, but they all bought from Phil. Mm. So Phil would buy at 60 off and sell to us at 50 off or something like that, 50% off, something mm. like that. But as those other shop, other distributors grew, mm. they loved Phil, but Phil wasn't doing a great job anymore. Okay. For all sorts of reasons. We're mm. now into the early 80s, very yeah. early 80s. Mm. And one company in particular... Uh, another forgotten name, New Media Urjax. Never heard Two of Two brothers from the middle of nowhere. They broke the monopoly. They sued and got... I don't know who they sued, but Marvel and DC started selling to them. Oh, okay. And to everyone else as well. Ah. Seagate lost their monopoly. Huh. And Phil was very ill, and it just sort of disintegrated, sadly, through the early 80s. Mm. But come the mid-80s, <clears throat> there's no Seagate, but there are another 10, 15 regional distributors around the United States, mm. plus us in the UK. And um, so I was suddenly working with a whole load of dis other distributors. Mm. To a certain extent, they're competing with me because they'd like to sell to England too. Mm. I'm competing with them because I want to sell to America too. But we had a really quite a friendly relationship with everybody. It was okay. Mm. In amongst this was the uh, early days of Capital City distribution. And, oh, what's that other company? Did they ever go anywhere? What were they called? Steve Jeppy and Diamond. <laughs> right. Just another little distributor. Mm. I think Steve Jeppy worked for the post office up to 1981-82. Hmm. Um, just a small aside... If there's one guy in this business that's been cleverer than all of us, it was Jeppy. Huh. You know, I think I was pretty good. There's a bunch of people who are a lot brighter than me, and he was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and still my friend. Um, yeah, so, um, um, again, by 93, it was plain. In America, it had all gone down to Capital City and... Diamond, Diamond and Capital City had bought out everybody else. Okay. There was only them two plus me. Mm. And I just knew we couldn't hold off for any, any... I just knew we couldn't hold off. We couldn't. Um, so I did a deal with Diamond and um, then basically left. Right. There we go. Oh. So... Aww. <laughs> I mean, here we are in 2021, you know, and <laughs> impossible. And, you know, I, and I'm going to, you know, book you for 30 years on. <laughs> I'm going to book you for another interview later in the year to talk about uh, <laughs> what you're doing in the current day in terms of, you know, producing comics. But when you, you look at that time, I mean, presumably you do look back at it fondly in terms of kind of like cr helping to create a market for comics, a distribution method for comics, a network of shops for comics that didn't exist that still has a legacy in the current day. Man, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm ever so proud that we were British as well, because oddly <laughs> we pre we presaged the Americans doing this. Our mm. shop was way better than pretty well all the American comic shops. To this day, most of them don't do the full thing. Comics, science fiction, fantasy, film, most of them don't. Most of them are still subdivided. Mm. There was one wonderful guy in L.A., Bill Leibowitz, Golden Apple, he he did his best to do everything as well. 
ideally love to have worked with Bill. Um, um, I got pretty friendly with him. Um, um, he was mates with all of the artists and writers. Hmm. Post every San Diego convention, anyone who was in LA would go to his shop for a, a, a party after the convention. And everybody was there. He got mm. everybody signing there. Nice. Um, he was the only one that worked it as hard as we did. Mm. But he didn't have the ambition for going national. Uh, I'd love to have done that with him. It would have been great fun. Mm. Um, he died, sadly, everyone's <laughs> um, in the late late 90s, early 2000s, I think. Mm. His wife and kids still run it, but it's smaller than it used to be now in LA. I had a long talk with her a few weeks, a few months ago, a few years ago. Hmm. Hmm. Um, um, the other, another very important, I call it an educational nexus, if you like, was um, Silver Snail in Toronto. Was uh, run wasn't owned, but run by a guy called Mark Asquith, who is still round and about our business. He's been running, doing much what you've done uh, hmm. here, uh, out of Toronto for years. Okay, with a TV company as well, a lot oh. of TV programs. That's why I'm missing uh, out on. <laughs> yeah, um, he did a. I think there's a DVD of interviews he did with the likes of Mobius and so on. Oh, nice. Um, Prisoners of Gravity. That was what it was called. Prisoners of Gravity. Um, but um, um, he, he'll t- tell you, um, you'll have to edit this, I've forgotten his name, Mark. <laughs> Mark Asquith um, will tell you he uh, absolutely loved what we were doing with Forbidden Planet and completely tried to emulate it and ah. did emulate it out of, out of Toronto. Ah. Um, 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 getting friendly with all the artists and writers and helping push their work and helping push the word out to the civilian population, not just the fanboys. Mm. Um, of course, by the middle of the 80s, a bunch of the artists and writers were suddenly becoming pretty savvy mm. that there is a, a, a world outside of fandom. Mm. Um, if I mention the name, what was he called? Neil Gaiman, for instance. <laughs> um, fantastic. Just uh, uh, Just talking to the world about our stuff. Mm. Comics, science fiction, fantasy, it's not a pigeonhole. It's just, it's something you should all be part of everybody's entertainment. And yeah. now it is. Indeed. Now it is. I mean, all these years later, mm. um, comics and science fiction pretty well rule two-thirds of the entertainment business. Indeed. But even when you were running Forbidden Planet in the 80s, you couldn't, have made enough money to run that business if it was just aimed at fandom. So you must have already started attracting the so-called mainstream customer into your shops. Oh, absolutely. Pu- purely just by being in the centre of London, I guess. Just absolutely. Yeah. As soon as someone sees this stuff, how can you not love it? <laughs> and, and that is what happened. I don't think we ever sold to a majority of people. We've never had a big, huge majority audience. But... It's a minority of people, but it's a big minority, and it's a minority that appreciates it if you really do them a good job. Um, they, they, it was very, very rewarding. 
And of course, science fiction as well was a big thing for us in the 80s. Um, um, we had as many science fiction and fantasy and horror signings mm. as we did comic book signings. Um, Clive Barker launched mm. all his books with us. Um, 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 one of my proudest things ever. My, I've got three or four all-time heroes. One of them is Arthur C. Clarke. And his last great book was The Fountains of Paradise. And he told Gallants that it was going to be signed at Forbidden Planet. Oh. <laughs> and I had to go to Gallants and meet them. Who are you? <laughs> well, I don't know. Arthur says we're going to go. Let's do it then. Okay. And that was great. And it's Arthur C. Clarke. The next morning I'm in the shop and I'm tidying up the shelves. Little knock on the door. Arthur C. Clarke. <laughs> I've got nothing to do this morning. Had such a good time yesterday. Can I just hang round? Maybe someone else would like something. Oh. Yeah, I hung out with Arthur C. Clarke for two hours. That's just one of my fondest, absolutely fondest memories. Because I, I loved his stuff. Still love his stuff. As much as anything. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> cool. Well... We've been chatting for an hour, so I think that's no, that's, not. <laughs> that's probably been a, a good pricey of uh, your know. early years. Um, Mike Lake, thank you very much. <laughs> You're more than welcome. <laughs> Three characters that Mike would also like to thank who were involved in the setting up of Forbidden Planet were his first three employees, Paul Hudson, John Nichols and Steve Robson, who Mike's told me were instrumental in the early days of the company. Mike Lake's website, lakesville.com, is currently under construction, so don't go to the website expecting much if you're listening to this not long after broadcast, but hopefully later in the summer there'll be loads of new content on his website about current and future projects. Needless to say, Forbidden Planet is still very much with us today, and you can find out more about the Forbidden Planet chain of stores by going to forbiddenplanet.com and you can find out more about Forbidden Planet International by going to forbiddenplanet.co.uk. In the second half of today's programme, I'm talking to Dr Nicholas Streeton and Kath Tate, the editors of the groundbreaking anthology title The Inking Woman, published by Myriad Editions. The Inking Woman catalogues, with various other co-creators, the work of 250 years' worth of female cartoonists and was inspired by an exhibition of the same name at the Cartoon Museum in London. And following my interview with Nicola and Kath, cartoonist Danny Noble leads a discussion with various people who joined us in the audience for the Zoom talk, who submitted questions to Nicola and Kath via the chat window in Zoom, as well as taking part in person. My interview with Nicola and Kath was recorded over Zoom in front of a live streaming audience, so you'll have to forgive the occasional glitches in sound quality. Kath, let's start with you, because it's as it says in the book, you wanted to do an exhibition of uh, the work of female cartoonists as early as the 1990s, and that was the time you were also working on women-led anthologies with uh, Carol Bennett. So could you talk a little bit about kind of the history of the Incan woman did it basically take you 30 years to get the exhibition off the ground or was it that the right time came along and the right place well I suppose what happened was the right money came along <laughs> yeah. um yes it did take about 30 years um I was working in the late 80s and 
the 90s, uh, 1990s, with a lot of women cartoonists. And um, I wanted to raise, well, basically raise the, pr the profile of women cartoonists because um, there was still very much the, the feeling that, oh, there were no women cartoonists and women don't have a sense of humour and all these old things are still very much doing the ransom. And um, what, I, what, what I was beginning to realise while I was publishing um, uh, postcards, actually, of women cartoonists' work and then the comics with Carol uh, Bennett was that um, there was so much work by really good, fantastic work by women cartoonists hidden in plain sight. They were there, but... It, uh, what I wanted to do is to bring um, all of the women cartoonists that we could lay our hands on together so that that everybody could see um, just how much talent there was there. It wasn't just this person here or the odd person there or Posey Simmons and um, Claire Bretiche. There was a, an enormous number of women with an awful lot of talent, and that's that was the sort of, that was I felt was my main um, the the thing that was pushing me on at that wow. time. Um, and when the thing the when the um, exhibition finally opened, there you can see there's something like 150 cartoonists, women cartoonists there, um, and. Uh, when I first um, proposed the idea to um, uh, to publishers in the um, in the nineteen nineties, I didn't find that they. I found publishers are saying, "Oh no, I don't think nobody would be interested in that," and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until um, years later, in the two thousand and tens, when. Um, I'd built my my business up enough, and I thought, bloody hell, I'm going to sponsor this. I'm going to um, uh, put the money in to make sure that it happens. And um, and Kate Charles was just saying that um, we also got we got support from people like Anita O'Brien, who was the um, uh, curator at the Cartoon Museum at the time as well, and um, she she picked up the idea and it happened then. Hmm. Well, and Nicola, if I could bring you in, you know, I, I guess the reason why it might have been difficult over the last 20, 30 years for there not to be a book about female cartoonists, an exhibition about female cartoonists, is that just so many men run the media and so didn't offer a space for that to happen. And I feel that in a way, you know, with your Ladies Do Comics, uh, which you started nine years ago, I think perhaps you kind of opened up the world of female cartoonists to a wider audience, you know, in order to kind of help them meet each other and have a forum. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's not it's not just comics. It's not just that. It's everywhere mm. that um, the the control is in men's has been in men's hands so it's not it's not unique to comics it's in fine art it's in publishing mm. but since feminist so my my research found that since feminism uh enabled women to have platforms at a higher level then it's it's enabled also uh them to open the doors to support women 
in publishing and in exhibition, in curating, so and in comics as well. So, but certainly um, it has. I think LDC Comics established in two thousand nine, so it's actually 11, 11 years. It's been going. Really, did uh, become a central a central hub in the UK quite quickly because it was London based as well. Our meetings, I think, that was significant. Hmm. And because of. I guess the the terrific reputation of of LDC. Um, did the Cartoon Museum approach you, or did you hear on the grapevine that the um, Inky Woman was being sort of thought about and uh, compiled? No, um, I, well, I had nothing to do with. I wasn't part of the curating. Okay. Uh, so, and my Just, link was through Corinne because. Uh, She's my publisher. She's my editor, mine. And also through Kath, because <laughs> I'd made contact with Kath a year or so before um, mm. because she was my case study. So um, I'd wow. spent some really enjoyable days uh, looking through Kath's personal archive uh, at her Kath Tate cards with this collection that goes back, you know, boxes of cards and really having fascinating discussions with her. And I think that's, um, you know, that, and then I was saying, if you do it to both of them, I'd love to be part of the publication to add the narrative, the historical narrative mm. around how feminism create, created the context for this new situation where Kath can just stroll in and wave her wedge of cash around <laughs> and it opens doors <laughs> well, not really but it I mean it you know times have changed as Kath was saying in yeah 20 years significantly and part of it yeah, was, yes. was Anita was directed by uh, the cartoon in yes yes that's that's true yes in fact once we once we'd done the exhibition we you know put the exhibition together I wanted to have a, like a permanent record of the, all all this work for a start that we um, got uh, that we'd done to pull together the uh, this group of, of women cartoonists. So, which is why I thought it was important that there was some sort of publication. And then it was people like Corinne were saying, "Get hold of Nicola Streeton, get hold of Nicola Streeton." So <laughs> I did, and uh, we we had a. Very enjoyable time working together on the book, actually, didn't we? It was really <laughs> Once we'd got our um, computer systems to tie up slightly. But <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, what the other thing that's important to say, I think, is that um, when we were putting together the exhibition and then the book, which was really, I had the basis of the exhibition there, there was, there was no list of women cartoonists there was nowhere had anybody compiled a list of the women cartoonists that existed. Um, if you got, there, there were books of cartoonists and there'd be 400 people in it, cartoonists in it, and 18 of them will be women. And for, very largely, it was me having a conversation with Kate Charlesworth, with Corinne, um, with Anita, and particularly Kate, you knew a lot of, um, Kate Charlesworth knew a lot of cartoonists going way back when, and I was just writing them down, saying, oh, and don't forget so-and-so, don't forget so-and-so. So we compiled this list just out of our own sort of common knowledge, really. And even since the book has been published, 
I've still come across more um, women cartoons right back to the 20s, 30s and 40s who just have disappeared. Mm. It doesn't help, of course, that a lot of them in those days um, didn't sign themselves with their first names. So um, people like uh, Marganita Belsky and Anton was another well-known cartoonist in the uh, 40s, but nobody knew that she was a woman, you know, because mm. she just called herself Anton, you know. So. Well, and I guess also, anyway. I mean... Um, it shows also, you know, I was talking earlier about how, you know, having men in control of publishing and the media, it made it very difficult for women's voices. But also you touched on the point that, you know, women had to use male alienus, aliases just to get published. And it was the same with female novelists before that, just to get, you know, uh, your foot in the door. And not only that, I mean, there's a section in The Inking Woman about Marie Duval. And if it wasn't for the work of people like Simon Grennan um, and Roger Sabin in recent years, I mean, she had almost been edited out of history consciously people had tried you know to suggest that she was a pen name of her husband's so you know all of this work needs to be done to kind of reclaim these female voices mm. yes 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 i don't think that's um happened a lot over the years i mean that obviously nowadays that doesn't happen but hopefully <laughs> <laughs> And Nicola, I mean, I guess it would have been good timing for you as well because you were doing your PhD research at the same time so that you could put your both your academic hat on and your LDC hat on and your cartoonist hat on and uh, combine all of your areas of interest. Yeah, and, and the strand that was my PhD was that it's through feminist activity that has created the platforms for this to happen. And also the point that MIFT is just reinforcing that um, it's the lack of permanence in the archives, in the libraries of this history. It's, a, it's an adding to women's history. And that's what I feel the Inking Woman has very successfully done um, for a general reader. And also because it's heavily illustrated, it's so nice. So it's the first of its kind. Mm. We love a first, don't we, Corinne? And, uh, and then, but, but I, it was also important for me personally to reinforce that with the publication of my book a year later, or actually last year of the, the more theoretical um, analysis, more analytical academic work as well. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the book basically, you know, as a kind of introduction to the subject answers the question that if anyone ever asks, you know, what female cartoonists are there out there, you go here's the book get back to me when you've read it <laughs> yeah and there has been there has been that at one of the talks um a guard a commissioner from the guardian came up to us when we did that talk at the british library uh and uh said this is really valuable because i'm put in this position but i don't know many women cartoonists so now i can work my way through so wait for that call anyone who's in it <laughs> and um one of the themes that we wanted to tackle, as well as it being a retrospective of the book and the exhibition today, um, is how has the scene changed for female cartoonists? So there have been a, a number of collections in recent years by female editors collecting female cartoonists. So do you think this is kind of coincidental or are we seeing a sea change in the visibility of women cartoonists at the moment? Um, I, I think it was alongside. I don't think it. I don't think that Inking Woman can take <laughs> credit for it. But I think it's part of this part of uh, uh, um, women being involved in in um, 
kind of women's issues. So, you know, Drawing Power, though it was from America, it did have a collection of British women artists in it. And it's about sexual violence that still hasn't gone away. It's been a feminist issue since the 70s. And it still need, you know, even today after publication, it needs addressing and what, what better way than in comics form. So it's this coming together. And one of the things about the strengths of feminist strategy in working is about collective, the, you know, this tradition of the collective of people coming together. And so uh, comics like Sour Cream, which um, Corinne was involved in, it was about women coming together and, and all the feminist publishing. And, and Kath Tate's um, Fanny Comics was about women coming together and publishing. And so Menopause is by MK, again, um, Chicago-based uh, artist, comics artist, who um, there's uh, as well women in there from the UK. And again, it's about one of the areas of uh, women's lives that's not so talked about or hasn't been his historically. And myths draw the line again, not women, women led, but not women only, but the, how many art, 100 plus artists coming together to um, as a form of activism using 113 myths correcting me. Yeah, amazing. All done, I think Miff can talk about that. Um, all done on via social media, wasn't it, Miff? Something like that. So this collective moving. And then the same system is um, bystander, which is, let me see, I've got it written down how many women involved in that is uh, by the Kadak Collective. It's an anthology gathering, an international set of South Asian artists, 50 plus South Asian creatives from 13 countries around gender and identity by women identifying and non-binary people. So again, really, um, and really nice publications, good high quality uh, production value and addressing serious issues. So I think there is, it's, a, it's part of a wider zeitgeist. Mm. I mean, historically, um, I mean, I guess, Kath, you were very much involved in having, uh, providing a platform for female cartoonists in terms of the uh, comics that you worked on with Carol and the postcards uh, that you printed. How did you find female cartoonists who needed an outlet? Was it as simple as if you build it, they will come once you put out a couple of examples, you get noticed and people flock to you? Well, it was... Um... Right at the very beginning, it was sort of pure chance, actually. I was in Silver Moon Bookshop, which one of the women who worked, who worked in Silver Moon said, oh, I know some cartoonists who, because they knew, I sold um, cards to Silver Moon, I've done that for years, and um, this woman working in Silver Moon said, oh, uh, I know some women who want to, put their, um, do some cartoons on cards. And I thought, oh, well, that's a fantastic idea. I'll, um, uh, and she arranged for us to all meet up. And we all met up at the um, Peter Express in, in Islington. And I met up with Kate Charlesworth, Kath Jackson, Viv Quillen, and a graphic designer called, um, called uh, Angela Spark. I think that was... Yeah, it was those four. And it, um, we happened to meet up at a time when um, the government was putting through a new law, um, Clause 28, which I don't know if you remember, 
mm. which some of some of the youngsters might not uh, might have uh, not know so much about, where the government was passing a law saying that anybody who worked for in for a public were social workers and people like that couldn't they had to promote uh, family life they shouldn't promote they weren't allowed to promote um, uh, homosexuality at all and the cartoonists I met up with that evening were absolutely furious with the this um, clause well it was clause 28. So I said, well, why don't you do some cartoons and I'll put them on cards and we'll sell them out of, um, I'll sell them to all the shops that I sell to. And in fact, those are the first um, women cartoonist cards that I um, published. That was in um, 1988. And um, so, and it went on from, went on from there, really. Once I'd met these um, four cartoonists, of course, through them, I met loads of other cartoonists and, the more cartoonists I met, the more I met. And uh, that's where I discovered that, that's when I started to discover that there were so many out there and producing these fantastic, this fantastic work. It was at the time that sour cream was being produced. It was at the same time. And, of course, sour cream was a, they were books and um, uh they were books and, mag- and magazines and comics. And also it was a time when um, the women's press were um, produced, Women Draw 84. So it wasn't like I was working in a vacuum. There were, there were um, women cartoonists whose work were being um, published and um, so, and, I became aware of just how many people there were. There were there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of work going on, as I say, hidden in plain sight, really. And yeah. I noticed that um, Suzanne Perkins <laughs> joined us, and she was the editor. At, um, she edited the Women Draw '84. She put out a um, a, a, a call out for women cartoonists to send their work in, and um, uh, and. She she just got sort of flooded with um, work from uh, cartoonists, and I think there were I can't remember how many of the cartoonists were in that that book in in the end. So, so mm. as I say, I wasn't working in um, in a vacuum. There were, there was a lot of other work out there at the same time. I mean, and Nicola, I guess I was kind of you know inviting the opportunity for you to big up ladies do comics because I felt that you know the platform that you provided over the last decade for female cartoonists, particularly ones, I guess, who were just starting out in the industry or just actually starting to put pen to paper, an opportunity to meet each other and talk about their work and find out what else was out there. Yeah, and it's it's a very similar, I think what's really nice about um, Kath's story about how she started publishing cartoon, women's cartoons is that chatting so it's chatting to someone in a feminist bookshop and then chatting meeting in a feminist pizza express I think it's (laughs) and then chatting (laughs) just having a meal so it's that it's that informal uh friendliness it's about making friends and that's what and, and it's those elements that Sarah and I 
very consciously introduced when we set up LDC or as, as was Ladies Do Comics because it was about providing a friendly, welcoming atmosphere where there's cups of tea, but also showing, you know, professionally, working professionally. So we did know how to do the tech. We knew how to use the projector. We lugged it around. And we had very established artists um, talking next to, as you say, people just beginning because it's that democracy, that um, openness. And, and it's how, you know, it's how Corinne's met a lot. A lot of people were then introduced to Corinne who, who then, you know, Paula Knight first spoke about her work, Una first spoke about their work at an LDC event and then later went on to become published. And so it's that, it's that networking, but I would call it friendship making, mm. friend making. Mm. That's very wonder... different to what we understand now. We think of networking as this kind of corporate, uh, very masculine behavior where it's like, yeah, let's exchange cards and go for a bit. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's a cup of tea and a, and a hug. You know, it's that sort of work of communicating, which is slightly not considered, you know, in our masculine culture, it's not considered proper. It's not business-like, but actually it's a more effective way of doing business or of, or of, Carrying on, isn't it, Kath? Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I suppose networking takes many forms. I've been amazed at the 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 ladies who comics that I've logged into. It's just how international it is now, mm. and there are people from all over the world. It's, it's just been amazing. But it's, it, yeah, it's uh, been an eye opener because it's been it's also all over the UK. So it's suddenly mm. made it accessible. And that's really, we can't go back from that. We really can't. It's such a bonus. And it's mm. and then it's learning us new, new voices, new people from around the globe rather than just. Yeah. Mm. Yes. But it's not to replace the physical. And also, I just wanted to say also, Alex, you know, to emphasize that LDC was never women only. A lot mm. of our activity now is, but it was women led. And it was that, we're, in the early days, we used to have men coming along and starting to ask, like at the end of a presentation, say, they'd say, but you know, that's not really a comic, is it? Because mm. it hasn't got a gutter and the panels. And we kind of went, very interesting question. Thank you. And you? <laughs> <laughs> It's that, it's that, that wasn't our interest. The interest was more about the content and, and that's what's coming out now, the anthologies. It's highly produ professionally produced content led. Well, you, you nicely led me back uh, to the book. Um, so when it came to compiling uh, the many um, female cartoonists whose work is presented in the Inking Woman as a book, was it a mixture of um, people that you'd been researching, Nicola, people who you had published, Kath, people who had been in the exhibition, you know, reaching back into history and also kind of research about what else was out there that maybe you hadn't previously encountered? It was all of those. Mm. And Anita O'Brien in the at the Cartoon Museum had quite a lot of she had quite a lot of knowledge of some of the very early cartoon cartoons and cartoonists as well. And they had copies of them in at the um at the Cartoon Museum because they have their own collection there as well. Mm. So she um got hold of quite a lot of the old suffragette um 
comics, well, they did um, postcards and posters. They used comic art to put their to put a, their political point across. Yes, I mean we we it was it was all of those. It was relying on our networks, so it's only mm. the tip of the iceberg, and we never claim to have it a uh, comprehensive because you know there's lots of people missing and the whole world of zines that is mm. is you know there's lots of there's a venn diagram of and and, and quite london and south centric still which mm. i think so i'm sure there's historically and current which you know that's yeah. hopefully people will add to what's been collected. well maybe the the, the um ldc being on Zoom has as, uh, encouraged women in uh, far-flung parts of Britain to come forward, well, to, to, to show their faces, really. And uh... mm. Yeah, we, we recently, uh, it's quite near, I guess, but we recently connected with some artists in, based in Ireland where there was an attempt to, or it was set up, an LDC branch was set up for maybe, they met twice, but they ran out of access to speakers because of the distances between where they were hosting. So it's it's the little practicalities like that, which are overcome to a certain extent, not completely by Zoom. Mm, mm, mm. I do miss uh, when we have the Zoom meetings, I do miss being able to uh, go down to the pub afterwards. <laughs> but soon, perhaps, uh, it, that'll be possible to... Um... And just to meet up and gossip, really. I think that's one of the things one's missed in uh, the pandemic is gossiping. It's jolly good gossip, actually. Because <laughs> I learned so much then, actually. <laughs> Indeed. Um, cool. Well, thank you um, both very much. It's been fantastic to hear more about uh, the history of the exhibition, the history of the book and what's going on now. Um, and I'll ask uh, Danny now to kind of host the Q&A um regarding questions in the chat and anyone who'd like to uh kind of ask nicola and kath a question yeah hi i just i just wanted to um say that inking uh, uh woman was my sort of gateway drug into comics um so thank you very much for that sure. i think <laughs> and nice to hear you gave me this sort of portal into to finding um all these amazing uh, artists, all these amazing stories. Um, and then it led to me going to an LDC uh, event and and some of the uh, women on that group, we formed our own little um, WhatsApp group. And uh, we've just, uh, we're just compiling our own little zine in response to Sarah Everard uh, and uh, Wen Jing Lee. Uh, so it's had a massive effect on me. And I wondered whether you've had uh, other uh, artists and women say the same thing to you. So, so that shows you there, Nicola, it worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Gail. And it, yeah, and it's it, very nice to hear that. And it's great to hear that spiralling off and certainly um, channeling through LDC and meeting other like-minded people and then creating projects together. That, I think we said to you at the time, that's quite a common um, happening that um, women meet and or people at LDC and then 
say, oh, do you want to collaborate in a sense or join together, either whether it's uh, group mentoring or um, creating something so that it's really nice to hear. And you and you are running a gallery space as well, Gail. We're so lovely successful. Yeah, yeah, that's, this is, so, you know, we are in the Welsh Valley, so you've reached the Welsh Valleys. Um, um, All right. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, that, the, another quick question I was going to ask is what, is the show still as an entity? Is it, is it, has it toured or has it also been broken up now? It has been broken up, unfortunately. Um, the Cartoon Museum moved and there was, there wasn't space to keep it together, but I have a feeling that there, there's an um, there, there was an edited um, show of it, wasn't there? Wasn't there some panels kept together? But in a way, this is where the book was so important um, because the the um, the books there as a, as a record of what was in the exhibition and more, in fact. So um, if anybody wanted to, to pull an exhibition like that together again, uh, you've got something to work on. You've got something as a, a sort of a basis to, to, uh, to work from. But unfortunately, the originals have, have scattered to the four winds now. Oh, that's a shame, but it sounds brilliant. I'd be up for... Yeah, yeah. Anybody who wants an exhibition, come to the Workers' Gallery. We'd love to yes. love to show the work. That'd be great. Yeah. Whereabouts in the Welsh Valleys are you? Uh, the Rontha and Isia. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so we have a, a sort of combined question. Corinne wanted to know if you're um, compiling a list of all your new discoveries of older artists. And Hannah Berry, our comics laureate, wants to know if there's going to be a second edition. Um. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to ask Corinne that. Uh, um. Yes, I mean, as soon as we did the, uh, as, as soon as the um, book had been sort of put to bed, of course, we immediately started finding uh, new, new cartoon, new older women cartoonists, or ones that are so old, they're long since dead now. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to, to do another edition, but um, uh, it depends on uh, publishers, really. I think it's um, I mean, I think publishing would be a good thing to do, but um, uh, but there's also this wealth. The thing is that kind of now, you know, we are so much more aware of all the, you know, cartoonists in other places and kind of so much more, you know, in India and thanks to kind of Nicola's work and everything else. I mean, it would be, it's sort of, it's really, I mean, it's great to kind of have inky women as it is, but it's tempting to do something new, I think, you know. Mm. That's for a kind of private discussion at some other point. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, I'm really aware over the last few years how kind of things have changed and how many more women cartoonists we're aware of and, you know, people of colour and, um, you know, from different nationalities and so on. I mean, that's, it's really, that's really excites me now. Mm. I must say, I mean, the last few years and obviously over the last year itself, but there have been sort of seismic changes in not just this country, but worldwide as well. And, um, and obviously, well, you know, one's having to 
uh, we're all having to deal with things like climate change and and obviously there's been the pandemic and our lives have been completely sort of and I suppose what I'm interested in now is seeing how cartoonists are reacting to these huge changes that are happening and how what sort of world the cartoonists would like to see coming out of it because things aren't going to stay the same and things are I think are have been changing very quickly and will continue to change very quickly. And I think it, that will be, that's an, an exciting thing to look forward to. How cartoonists see the future, that's what I would like to. Um, we've got a question from Lauren, Matilda and Arlo, who want to know what it was like working with Corinne. I'm sure it was wonderful. <laughs> and how you dealt with the sheer logistics of compiling the book. Well, Corinne is a wonderful person to to uh, work with. Actually, you were Corinne because you um, had such a wealth of knowledge anyway, and real interest in the cartoonist. Uh, you know, real interest in the subject matter, and um, but also a, a, a level of um, reality. You know, um, of uh, of the publishing reality of what one could put in and what one could and uh, editing the, the the book itself generally, it was quite a it was quite complicated to put together. Yeah, what were you going to say, Nicola? Um, I was going to say, actually, to be honest, Corinne did everything. Me and Kath just said, "Should we have them and them and them?" <laughs> then sent the names through to Corinne, and she's like putting it all in position. So she did far too much, as she does with all the publications. But yes, thank you, yes. thank you, Myriad. So that was, um, but it yeah, was that's really, true. That's why it was such a pleasure for us, me and Kat. Yes, Corinne did all the hard work, <laughs> work. But thank yes. you. Good. Yeah, it was a power team. It felt really nice. Yes, it was just sort of hours of sifting through really and um sifting through oh i find it quite interesting because it, it was going back and sifting through cartoons i hadn't looked at for decades literally decades and working out what which were the best two cartoons to represent this person's work or that person's work and um and then Nicola, you knew much more about the the, the um, people working nowadays, the, the more more modern people. So, yeah. So, Danny, what's what's next, Danny? Any more? For any more? I missed. I missed anyone. I think everyone's so engrossed in yeah. in your I'm, amazing answers that no one's <laughs> asked any more questions. I was just going to say, um, uh, it, while Corin's. Uh, looking at the logistics of doing a volume two or a volume three, um, uh, keeping an eye on Broken Frontier for uh, Andy's list of up and coming cartoonists um, would be a good way of finding out who is kind of breaking into the scene to answer Laura Page's uh, question. But um, to, So Laura's question um, about producing anthologies of up and coming comics artists, I think, um, it, it could be a thing, but I, I would imagine that it would need to be artist-led and crowdfunded. So I think that's a new vehicle rather than rely on a publisher to do it for you because publishers aren't in that great a shape at the moment in this country. And yet crowdfunding has become a thing, an acceptable part of, of publishing. And so that might be something... Mm. 
but it, it's it's rather than wait for someone to invite you do it yourself mm. and there's a lot of that it's there's a history recent history of zine type you know comics fairs someone was talking about earlier that's what goes on and you know like gail was talking about a few women coming together and say let's put something together let's do it and that's mm. how that's how this works so um it's it's a great question and and there straight away Lauren, Matilda and Arlo, you've got your first customer. You can do it on a subscription basis. So there we are, Laura, there's your job, <laughs> sorted. Yeah. And Soaring Penguin now, yeah, that's right, crowdfunding, that's it. Soaring Penguin, a crowdfunding, Good Comics, a crowdfunding, Cast Iron, a crowdfunding. So it's a, it's a way of making things. Brave new world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the last year obviously has um, changed, put changed everything upside down because I mean, just bluntly, all the bookshops have been shut most of the time, and um, and the card shops as well as we've discovered, and so um, people have just had to find different ways of, of different ways of of getting your work out to the big wide world, and um, this, I mean, it has been quite hard as old uh, the, um, the structures that were there before have um, ha haven't been that strong over the last year so we haven't disappeared altogether but uh, certainly caused problems with the pandemic mm. actually I was going to ask you that Kath has it in terms of finding distributors for your cards during the pandemic, it felt like it was, you know, Tesco Superstores, Super Sainsbury Superstores and WH Smiths. And that was the only place you could buy greeting cards. Were you yes, able to distribute yeah. any of your product that way or online? Well, um, yeah, yes. Uh, we were lucky, actually, that we actually sold to Waitrose now and and um, WH Smiths. And not, not a huge amount, but we did, we are in those shops. Um, and we also set about up, uh, upgrading our um, direct sales to the, the public, which was only a very small amount of our business anyway. Uh, but thank goodness all the rest of the shops have now opened because um, last March, when we went into lockdown, we went into complete sort of panic mode to start off with, but my daughter sort of pulled, the whole, pulled it together, basically, and... Um, save the business and stuff so because we just did not know what was going to happen next you know we didn't know if we were going to come out of it at all and quite a lot of our customers i don't think are going to open up again some of the small shops and so on which is a pity but um i think people will find other ways of uh other ways through it i can't tell you what they are but um there are going to be People are going to regroup in in but in in different ways now. So not been that easy. I mean, you, Corin, you you must have found that with Myriad as well, haven't you? You're muted. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> we have. It, it's it's really interesting because some of the largest publishers have been doing so well that they've been paying all their furlough money back to the government. Um, while um, I think independent publishers, I think it's really quite 
a, a different story, actually. And of course, you know, kind of all the warehouses and the bookshops and so on, I mean, they've been concentrating on their best-selling lines and stuff. Mm. So the independent quirky people, we have been enormously supported by our independent audiences. So in terms of direct sales and so on, you know, it's been really encouraging and so on. Um, but actually the wider, you know, the wider picture is quite sort of worrying in terms of people who actually go out and, um, you know, buy books and particularly expensive ones. And obviously kind of graphic novels are, um, you know, at the moment anyway, they are quite pricey. I thought one of the questions one should ask people is, you know, when was the last time you brought a, bought a, a graphic novel? Um, but, you know, one does sort of have, even though it's my business, I do have to kind of pace it out myself. And I think that's really kind of quite, you know, worrying or salutary. On a more positive note, <laughs> we've got another <laughs> question from Lauren Matilda Narlo. Um, can you find? Can we find out which women comic artists you're each excited about at the moment, published or not? Yeah, Nicola. Well, I, I, I'm, I'll start because I'm looking forward. We've just opened for submissions for LDC Award, Women Only Awards 2021. Opened Monday. Uh, deadlines end of July, and that I'm I'm preparing to be excited by the entries for that because that is about work it's not necessarily people who haven't been published but works that haven't been published and certainly this is the fourth time we've run the award and it's generated some really interesting and and um varied submissions of, and stories so that's what i'm looking out for and also we've run a couple of residencies which has introduced me to um, some amazing works going going on and all quite different so different from different um, directions so again um, we're keeping and and the monthly events we're still hosting new up-and-coming comics artists so um, that's a that that I didn't name any names I got through that without naming any names didn't I <laughs> yeah what I find is that um, and I, I I find it uh, difficult to name names, but there's some really fantastic um, work being produced in comics, which actually are, are very are very difficult to translate into onto greetings cards, which is a very particular type of cartoon that needs that can go onto greetings cards, and um, so when I'm looking at new people's work. Um, I'm, I have that brain on me, you know, um, what's going to work on a card, what's going to work on a card. And um, I'm often sorry that um, a lot of the work I see is, is really beautiful and, and really expressive and um, really says important things, but won't work on a, on a, little little card um 12 by 17 centimeters you know um which has to be uh, which also has to grab people's attention just like that um so sometimes when i see new people's work i i do think 
it's really fantastic stuff, but I'm very frustrated that I can't can't use them. Basically, maybe I should go into publishing uh, comics instead. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Streeton and Kath Tate, um, for your wonderful talk. Um, to Alex Fitch for your insightful questions. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> the book, The Inking Woman, is available now for Myriad Editions, and you can find them at myriadeditions.com. Danny Noble, who chaired the Q&A in the second half of the interview, is a terrific cartoonist in her own right, as well as a great musician. And you can find more information about her work by going to dannyscargal.wixsite.com. That's D-A-N-N-Y-S-K-A-G-A-L dot W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com. You can find Kath Tate Cards at kathtatecards.com. And Dr. Nicholas Streeton's website is nicholastreeton.wordpress.com. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-R-E-E-T-E-N dot WordPress dot com. When the book was first published, I did an interview at the launch party for the book at the Cartoon Museum and spoke to comic and presenter Sandy Toxvig about her interest in the project and to artist Surreal McCoy, who's one of the many contributors to the book. You can find a link to this show by going to our website, www.panelborders.wordpress.com Ladies Do Comics, now going by the shorter brand name of LD Comics, is still going strong, and their next meeting is taking place on May the 17th, with guests M.K. Sherwitz, otherwise known as Comic Nurse, the author of such books as Taking Turns, Stories from HIV AIDS Care Unit 371, and Menopause, A Comic Treatment, Lee Lear, Australian cartoonist who will be talking about her upcoming book Stone Fruit and Anne Met Lorentzen, a Danish cartoonist who will be talking about her new book When I Came Out. You can find more info about Ladies Do Comics by going to ldcomics.com. The Q&A with Nicola Streeton and Kath Tate was recorded at a Cartoon County event, the monthly meetup for Sussex-based cartoonists providing an audience for a Q&A with a graphic novelist amongst their peers. The next online Cartoon County event is taking place on the 7th of June at 7pm, and I'll be talking to Eisner-nominated writer Alex DeCampi about the various sci-fi comics that she's worked on recently, including the graphic novel Maddie, Once Upon a Time in the Future, co-written by director Duncan Jones, and intended as the third part of his cinematic trilogy, which started with Moon and Mute, and her strip, Full Tilt Boogie, which has been serialised in 2000 AD and 2000 AD Regend, and is part of the title's initiative to bring younger readers to the galaxy's greatest comic. And I'd like to thank the curators of Cartoon County, Corin Perlman and David Lloyd, for providing this show with so much content over the years. If you're listening to this program on its original day of broadcast, then tomorrow, Thursday the 3rd of June, is the start of a two-day academic conference taking place at the Université de Picardie Jules Verne in Amiens in France. While most of the conference is taking place in French, 
there are two talks from a British perspective on comics, starting with former comics laureate and graphic novelist Hannah Berry, who'll be discussing writing new sci-fi kids comics, including The Res and Divock 9, and she's talking at 2.30 tomorrow, and then the following day, Scottish comics academic Lawrence Grove will be discussing the depiction of disability in YA titles, and that's at 9.30am on Friday. You can find more info about both talks and how to access the University of Picardy's Zoom account by going to graphicbrighton.wordpress.com. As mentioned earlier, today's show is the 500th episode of Panel Borders. And to help fill it, the 499 previous episodes, which you can find on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, there's a recent post on the site with links to 25 interviewees who I've spoken to over the last 15 years, including Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Audrey Neffenegger, Raymond Briggs, Brian and Mary Talbot, Mariko Tamaki, Stan Sakai, Julie Hollings, Toshio Maida, Jim Stalin, Gerald Scarf, Nick Rogue, Chris Riddell, Dave Gibbons, Hannah Berry, Charlie Adlard, Stuart Lee, and many more. I'd also like to thank the various people who have guest presented and guest interviewed a number of notable comic book creators on the show, including Dickon Harris, Duncan Knott, Virginie Selavy, Philippa Perry, Grant Rogers, and many others. And the 501st episode of Panel Borders will be broadcast on the first Wednesday in July. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. And as ever, as has been the case for all 500 episodes, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.